Well done, ladies. What if someone came to you during the week and in a conversation asked you this question? How can I be saved and have eternal life? Now, at first, you probably would be taken back by such a wide open door that you've been given to share because that's uncommon. But if somebody asked you that question, how would you answer it? How can I be saved and have eternal life? Maybe you would uh, talk about the love of God. Maybe you would talk about sin which is what we're saved from. Maybe you would explain how sin separates us from God and there is holy judgment because of sin. Maybe you would talk about God loving us so much He sent Jesus. I hope you'd talk about Jesus. You might talk about the death of Jesus on the cross in our place to pay our sin penalty. You might talk about his resurrection. I hope you would. That he conquered death so that he is able to give eternal life, that hope, to those who trust in him. You probably would talk about faith in Christ, trusting in him. You might talk about repentance, forgiveness, grace. How would Jesus answer that question, or at least a similar question, if it were asked of him. Well, in our text today in the book of Mark, if you would turn to Mark chapter 10, we're going to see how he would answer a similar question. Because he's asked a question like that. And I want to give you a heads up here, because if you're really thinking as you read this text you might be surprised at how he answers the question. Because Jesus does not talk about sin. Jesus does not talk about forgiveness or repentance. In answering the question, he doesn't talk about the love of God. He doesn't talk about his death or resurrection, which, of course, hadn't happened yet, right? In his answer, he doesn't talk about faith or grace. How could he do that? How could he not answer that? How could he answer that question and not say the things we would say? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, If you would stand with me, uh, we'll pray first. This could be a most important day in someone's life. We need to pray about that. Our Father, we uh, look forward to looking at your word again and especially seeing Jesus, seeing how he responds to this question, seeing this conversation that he had, seeing how he took that conversation to teach something very important to his disciples. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts that you would teach us whether we know you or don't know you. There's something here for each of us.
And I pray that you would show us that today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Mark chapter 10. If you're visiting us, uh, we are going through the book of Mark week by week and have been in chapter 10 the last couple weeks. Mark chapter 10. Our passage is actually beginning in verse 17. But before we look at that, I want us to see what came right before this. Because I think there's a connection with the the previous opportunity Jesus takes to teach his disciples something, and then the passage we're going to look at. So let's start in verses 13 through 16. This happens right before our passage. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them, sent him away, or at least tried. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, didn't like that. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The disciples trying to keep the children from Jesus gives Jesus an opportunity to teach them something. And it's something about entering the kingdom of God. And what he teaches them is that In order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a child. He's not saying only little children go into the kingdom of God and are saved. But he says, in order to enter the kingdom, to be saved, you must become like a child. Not childish, childlike. So what do you think he means? Well, probably things like trust, You need to trust like a child would trust. You need to be willing to be dependent. Like a child is so willing to be dependent. You need to be willing to follow simple devotion and love. A child hasn't lived long enough to earn the kingdom of heaven. A child isn't at a place socially, positionally, where somebody could say they deserve to be in the kingdom of heaven. They haven't lived long enough to do anything that would deserve that or to earn it. There isn't a whole lot of pride there that's built up in their short little life. There isn't a lot of arrogance. There isn't a lot of self-sufficiency, like Peggy mentioned, that's built up in a small child. And Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to come like a little child. Set everything else aside and just come like a child. Trust and follow. Now, that's what he teaches in that previous opportunity here right before our passage so now we come to verse 17 
through 33. And we'll just go through it a couple verses at a time. Follow the narrative. Verse 17 and 18. As Jesus started on his way, and if you look at verse 32, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Okay? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. And here's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So right after this teaching opportunity about being like a child to enter the kingdom, they start walking along toward Jerusalem and this man comes running up with this question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And I would suggest to you that this man has a desire that's real when he asks that question. This is a real desire that he has. It's about eternal life. What must I do to have eternal life? I think it's real because, notice, he runs up to Jesus. He's eager. He initiates this. He interrupts the journey. He runs up. Second, he gets on his knees in front of Jesus. This must have been real for this guy. He comes running and gets on his knees. And he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Very respectfully. He's not challenging Jesus like many had up to this point. And he asks the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Something's been going on in his life, obviously. Whatever it is, whatever has brought it about, whatever the thinking, uh, we don't know. But something has led this man to have this desire for eternal life. And somehow he has found out or heard that Jesus can answer his question, has the answer. And so it's, it's a real desire. This doesn't look fake. He really wants to know. How do I obtain eternal life? Good teacher. And Jesus' first response is, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Not sure why he says it that way. Uh, some people think that what he's saying to the man is, are you saying I'm God? We're not sure why he responds that way. But here's the man on his knees with a real desire, humble, eager, respectful. How do I inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 19, he says, you know the commandments. Now, right away, an evangelical Christian today would stop and say, Jesus, what are you doing? It's not about the commandments. 
It's not about the law. Right? But the first thing he brings up in answering the question about eternal life is the commandments. The law. And that's what he says. You know the commandments. And he lists six of them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud, which is cheating, might be uh, part of that not coveting uh, commandment. And then honor your father and mother. So he brings up the commandments, reminds the man of six of them. You've got to hang in there with Jesus, folks. He's got a reason for starting with the commandments. So he brings them up, and in verse 20, the man says, Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And uh, my translation here says, Teacher, he declared. It's, it's like he's sure of himself, right? When you declare something, I'm sure of this. He's got confidence here. In what he says. And he confidently says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And I've written in my Bible, really? Can anybody say that? He probably was confident that he could say that because his idea of the commandments were probably that they were just this outward behavior. Okay? And... Uh, he could confidently say, as far as he knew, he hadn't blatantly violated any of those particular commands. Maybe that's what he's thinking. And there's a confidence here. It's almost like, hey, I'm okay. If, if that's what it is, I'm okay. If that's what I have to do to obtain eternal life. What is Jesus doing here? Why this approach? Well, first of all, he's not going to talk about the cross and his death in the place of sinners. He's not going to talk about his resurrection and his conquering death so he can give eternal life. That hasn't happened yet, right? We can talk about that in answering this question, but Jesus doesn't because it hasn't happened so he chooses to go to the commandments. What's he thinking? What, what's he doing here? Take a peek at Romans chapter 3, something Paul said later, which obviously Jesus knew, not because he read Romans, that wasn't written yet, but he knew this truth about the commandments, about the law. Could this be what he was doing? In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19, 19 and 20, Paul says this about the law, the commandments. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. 
Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, Jesus knew that. Jesus isn't saying, if you just obey these six commands, you'll have eternal life. Jesus knew that. Paul said, you, you aren't saved because you try to obey the law. Jesus knew that. But Jesus also knew what the purpose of the law was. A primary purpose of the law was to help people understand they are sinners. They can't keep the law perfectly. There's no way. So is it possible what Jesus was doing here was trying to get this man to make that acknowledgement? Is it possible that what Jesus was looking for was the commandments, the law, to do its work and for the man to hear to receive eternal life, you have to keep these commands and for the man to say, oh, I can't. I've already violated some of them. If keeping the commandments is what gives me eternal life, I'm lost. Maybe that's what Jesus was looking for. That kind of response. Instead, he gets this confident declaration. Oh, I've kept all those since I was a small boy. He didn't respond to the commands in the way the law was meant to have people respond. So Jesus goes on, and the interesting thing is, what's Jesus going to do? When he doesn't respond to this idea of following the commands in the way that would be humble, would, would bring him to the acknowledgement of his sin, his inability to, to follow those commands... What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to be critical? Wrong answer, boy. What's he going to do? Is he going to correct him? Let me give you a lesson in the law, what the law is really for, young man. No. This is such a beautiful verse. It says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him. And loved him. You can use the word beautiful for that. Here's a man whose confidence has just fallen short. Here's a man who wasn't humble enough to acknowledge he hadn't kept the law perfectly. And yet Jesus looks at him and loves him. Wow. And here's what he says. One thing you lack. Underline or circle one thing. That's important here. One thing you lack, he says to the man. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Again, we look at that and we say, Jesus, what are you doing? That's not how you share salvation. That's not how you 
answer people's question about eternal life. They just have to go sell what they have and give it to the poor. And they're going to heaven? Jesus, that's not right. Why is he doing this? Well, Jesus knows something about the man. Okay? Obviously, he knows something about this man. And friends, the most important part of what he says isn't sell everything you have and give to the poor. The most important part of his statement is, and follow me. Follow me. The next verse, the man's response, indicates why Jesus said what he said. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. What does it mean when your face falls? You are shocked. You are taken back. You are dismayed. And it says he went away. He went away. He got up off his knees and walked away. In a huff? No. It says he went away sad. And here it is. Because he had great wealth. This was a rich man. He had great wealth. You see, what Jesus, I think, was doing was revealing something to this man about himself and revealing something to the man. I think Jesus knew that this man had one thing in his life that would keep him from eternal life and from following Jesus. And that was his wealth. I think Jesus knew that although he hadn't quoted it from Exodus 20, this man was violating the very first commandment. What's the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus knew that in this man's life, wealth was in the place of God. It's what his life was all about. And knowing that was the one thing, I suggest Jesus needed to reveal that and test that next to his desire for eternal life. And so he says, one thing you need to do is sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and then follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, move your wealth away from God's place in your life. And put me there. Follow me. That's how you will obtain 
eternal life. But the man walks away. One author has called this the great refusal. The great refusal. The man walks away without what he came for. Isn't that interesting? He walks away without something he really, genuinely desired. And just wanted to know how to get it. And when he finds out what it will take, that Jesus has to come before his wealth, he sadly walks away without what he desired. What a sad story. Well, the disciples are amazed at this. They're amazed at what they've just heard and seen. They're amazed at the opportunity Jesus takes to teach them. And Jesus says something that just blows their mind. Verse 23. Jesus looked around. Picture it. This conversation has taken place. This rich man has gotten up off his knees and he's walking away. Probably his head down. Sad. He's walking away, and Jesus looks around. You can just see him looking after this man who's walking away. And notice, Jesus doesn't run after him. Jesus doesn't go after him and say, wait, wait, wait. Let me say it a different way. He lets him go. He looks around. He watches. The disciples are watching. They're watching this man walk away until he disappears. And then... Jesus takes an opportunity again to teach his disciples. And it says in verse 23, Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. They just seen this. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus used used a a common hyperbole here, a, a, a saying. It was a saying among the Babylonians, only they used elephants. Because the elephant was the biggest animal in the Babylonian kingdom. But the Arabs had this saying about a camel passing through the eye of a needle. It was a common saying. It was hyperbole to describe something that's an impossibility. If something was impossible, you'd just say, oh, that's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says that about a rich person entering the kingdom. It's impossible. In verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, Then who in the world can ever be saved? 
That's my paraphrase of it, but that's what they're saying. Who can be saved? If that's the case, why would they be amazed at what Jesus is saying? In the Jewish culture at that time, it was thought that prosperity, possessions, and wealth was a sign of God's pleasure and that it was a blessing from God. And if somebody was rich, this was the first prosperity gospel, friends. The Jewish culture said prosperity is God's blessing. It's his reward for the life you're living. And so in the Jewish culture, prosperity would have been a ticket to the kingdom, not a barrier. And what's Jesus saying about wealth here? It's a barrier. It can get in the way. And they always thought it was a ticket in because it showed God's blessing and favor. So they're amazed at what's happening here and what's transpired and what Jesus is saying about the rich and how hard it is for them to let go to enter the kingdom. So they're amazed. And that's why they say, well, if rich people can't get into the kingdom, who can be saved? Okay, that's the idea. Who can? And Jesus says, Verse 27, with man, this is impossible. Friends, with man, salvation is impossible. There is nothing man can do to earn salvation. There's nothing man can do to save himself or herself. It's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Salvation is impossible for man to do on his own because salvation is a work of God. And God can do the impossible. Before we move on to the next teaching by Jesus and this opportunity he has, let me just mention, this passage is not a put-down of rich people. This passage is not saying if you're wealthy and you have possessions, it's impossible for you to get eternal life. I hope you get the idea here that what Jesus is saying is, Riches can be a a serious barrier to salvation because you tend to put it in God's place and it's really hard to move it from there and put Jesus there. It's a barrier. It can make it really difficult. But as I'm going to share as we close in a few minutes, there are a lot of other things that are barriers. It just happened to be in this man's life Riches. And Jesus knew that, so that's the direction he went. Peter. Guess who speaks up? Peter, verse 28, said to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. Jesus, we've left everything 
follow you. They had, hadn't they? They'd left family. They'd left their jobs, their careers, their livelihood. Matthew had left wealth. As a tax collector, I'm sure he was very wealthy. Peter is stating truth here. He says, Lord, we've, we've left everything to follow you. And here's what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. No one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel. And will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What's Jesus indicating? I think Jesus is indicating that following him A basic truth about following him is that it involves leaving something. And for the disciples, it was family. It was jobs, careers. It was wealth. They'd left a lot to follow Jesus. And I think Jesus is just saying, that's a basic truth about following me. You're going to leave something behind. And he just brings up the things that the men right there with him probably had left. Not what everybody has to leave. But everybody who follows Jesus usually leaves something behind. But he says, there's blessing you're willing to leave something someone behind because you follow me there's blessing and he says the blessing can take the form of family it can take that form let me read this for you decades ago a Canadian missionary traveled to Saskatchewan to bring the gospel to an Indian village the fatherhood of God fascinated these people because they had always viewed gods as being in the lightning and the thunder and the storms and inanimate parts of nature. And this idea of the fatherhood of God just amazed them. And one day, after the missionary had prayed, the chief asked him, Did I hear you say to your God, our Father? Yes, said the missionary. Your God is your Father? The chief asked. He certainly is, the missionary replied. The chief asked, and could he be my Father? And the missionary said, yes, he could, chief. 
And then, as if the light came on, the chief made this statement. You and I can be brothers. And I think every one of us who is in the family of God knows that concept. That sometimes when we choose to follow Jesus, something we leave behind includes family. It happens, doesn't it? Because of their response. But going along with what Jesus says to disciples, in return you get all kinds of family. You get all kinds of brothers and sisters, and you get a father. That's what Jesus was saying. Peter says, we've left so much for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I know. But you will receive so much. A new family. Remember Jesus kind of prepared them for that back in chapter 3 when his biological family came to take him away. And he says, who's my family? And he points to those with him that he's teaching. Here's my family. Here's my brother, sister. I mean, he was kind of preparing them for this idea. So it's a real interesting story. It's a sad story when you think about the rich man who came, who ends up going away sad, without what he asked for, whatever, without what he desired, eternal life. But he refused it on Jesus' terms. He refused to take his riches. That was the barrier. That was the one thing. Remember Jesus said, one thing. You're so close. The one thing. He couldn't take the wealth off of God's place and put Jesus there. But it's a great opportunity for Jesus to teach his disciples then about salvation and that it's impossible for us as human beings to earn or somehow produce our own salvation. It's impossible for us to have salvation if we let something other than Jesus be on the throne in God's place. Salvation is God's work. He does it. So, let me end this way. Questions are on your sheet. You can think about it. But the question is, uh, by the way, you're wondering why I skipped the last verse. I didn't. He says, the first will be last, the last will be first. If you follow that in the context, he's basically saying... um, Those who are first by human standards are going to be last in the end. Those who are last by human standards will be first in the end. This rich ruler in the now looked pretty good. He was rich. But he went away without eternal life. It will not be good in the end. The disciples, low as far as human value in society, they appeared last to the culture. But Jesus said, because of what you have been willing to let go of and follow me, then you'll be first.
What is the one thing? That has been a barrier for you. That has kept you from following Jesus. Those of you who are following Jesus, you can probably remember what it was for you back then. Was there that one thing? That one last barrier that kept getting in the way? I had a friend... And for him, it was guilt. That was the one thing. We'd talk, and he was right there on the edge. He knew he needed salvation. He wanted it. But he couldn't ask for forgiveness because he didn't think God could ever forgive him for what he had done in his past. And his guilt was in God's place. It was controlling his life. And it was that one thing that kept him from salvation. Fortunately, God broke through that, and he's a follower of Christ today. I had another friend who was part of a religious system, and as we studied the Word together, he began to realize that the system he was part of was not teaching truth. And so he got to the point where he was ready to give his life to Christ and leave that system. But there was one thing. They kept getting in the way. And it was family, specifically his mother. His mother was embedded in that religious system. And he was afraid that if he turned his life over to Christ, to his mother, to his family, it meant walking away from them. And he was afraid of being pushed out of his family. And it was the one thing That one last barrier. But again, thankfully, God helped him break through that. And he trusted Christ for salvation. Those of you who don't know Christ, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that has caused you to keep walking away from salvation? What's that one thing that's been a barrier? You know, maybe it is wealth. Maybe it is possessions. Maybe it's uh, control. You like controlling your life, and you, you just know that if you were to give your life to Christ, you'd give up control to Him. And that's that one last thing. Maybe it's lifestyle. Maybe there's something in your lifestyle, and you know, you know that... It's wrong, and if, and if you were to follow Christ, you'd have to move that away. Get rid of that. And right now, it's in God's place, and you don't want to give that up. For some, it might be your friends. You just know how your friends will respond if you were to follow Jesus. You'd probably lose some of them. And that's the last, that's that one thing, that last barrier. For others, maybe like my friend, it's a religious system. It's a way you've been taught all your life. And now you're seeing in Scripture that it's not true. And yet, it's what you've been taught all your life. And so it's that last barrier, that one thing that keeps you. Maybe it's ambition, goals, plans. You've got it all set. 
You've got your life mapped out. And you know that if you trust Christ for salvation, it's possible he has a whole different set of goals and plans. And you just can't picture that. And so that's the one thing for you. And maybe it's pride. Maybe it's just knowing you're going to have to admit that you've been wrong all these years. You've got to admit that you are a sinner, and that's just so hard for you. And it's the one thing. What is the one thing that keeps you walking away from God's salvation and eternal life? How many times are you going to keep walking away and letting that one thing stay in God's place? And refuse his salvation. Will you walk away again today? Or will you walk in? Will today be when you will walk into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? With his help break through that one thing that's gotten in the way. Surrender your life to him. Seek his forgiveness. Put him in that place. That first place. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your salvation. Father, thank you for the wisdom of Jesus and how he uh, approached this with this man, knowing this man's situation, knowing this man's heart, knowing the one thing that would get in the way of what this man sincerely desired. But Father, we also see the power of those one things. We see the power that those things have to keep us from you. To keep us from walking into a relationship with you through Jesus. Father, I pray there's someone here today who's allowed some one thing to be a barrier to salvation in their life. Father, may you, before the day is over, help them break through that one thing. And surrender their lives to you and follow you. And receive forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. In Christ's name, amen. Well, my memory was not as good as I thought it would be in this. So I really do, I mean, these three things really truly do stand in my way some days of being willing to bow the knee and uh, surrender to Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm just going to read a little before we worship with the last song, and then Carol's going to close us out in prayer. Um, adult self-sufficiency must recognize its need for the sovereign God. Adult moral defensiveness must humble itself before the holy God, before the loving God. Um, and what? see, that's the one that I... Oh, my goodness. I can't even see it. It must be really a hard one for me. There it is. Adult skeptical toughness must soften itself before the loving God. Coming to Jesus means to accept his goodness on your behalf, confess your need, and commit your life to his tender guidance. So would you stand and worship with us?